So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And that's good. Peace is good. It may well be true that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, but it is also true that it is hard to do evangelism while you are running away from the executioners. Persecution may be good for the church in its way, but peace is good for the church in its way as well. For about a decade, the church had peace, and it grew and was built up. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Acts chapter 9 covers a lot of ground in terms of the chronology of the early church and in terms of the timeline for the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. God had a plan for this former persecutor of the church, and it was a plan with a number of unexpected twists and turns. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 9. Having introduced Saul Paul back in chapters 7 and 8, Luke now narrates for us the story of his conversion. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, it can be hard to keep track of the chronology in Acts because Luke will skip large chunks during which nothing terribly noteworthy was happening. But this event seems to have happened fairly early on in the timeline of the early church. F.F. Bruce dates the conversion of Paul in the year A.D. 33, which means that Paul was about the same age as Jesus, which means that it is entirely possible, indeed probable, that Paul had seen and heard Jesus preaching and teaching in the flesh. Paul tells us that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, the Hebrew Harvard of the day, which means he was headquartered in Jerusalem, which means that he would have been in the city at the same time as Jesus on many different occasions. That he became such a virulent opponent of the Christian message seems to suggest that he was more than passing familiar with the person and the issues in play. Paul was a zealot, and he was zealously opposed to the people and to the message of Jesus Christ. Having rooted out many of the key players in Jerusalem and having sent the church scattering in all directions, he begins now to take the fight on the road, as it were, and he travels to Damascus, a city about 240 kilometers north of Jerusalem. And somewhere along the way, he had his now famous Damascus Road conversion experience. 
he was blinded by the light. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, notice here that Jesus identifies personally with the church. Jesus doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Christians or why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus personally identifies with his church generally and with persecuted Christians in particular. I think that's good to know. Saul is overwhelmed. He has just realized that the person he has opposed these many years, the person whose followers he has been harassing and arresting and torturing and killing, is in fact in heaven and speaking, as it were, from the very throne of God. That's a hard thing to realize, and Brother Saul needs some time to sort himself out. Verse 7 says, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Obviously Saul is traumatized. You can get pretty sick when you're not eating or drinking for three days, but clearly the brother has been spiritually and psychologically destabilized. His world has been turned upside down. Like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, he has come face to face with the Lord and he is undone. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, let's just pause here. I don't want to harp on this, but I, I do think that the evangelical church has overreacted to the excesses of the charismatic movement and is now in danger of denying the obviously supernatural nature of authentic biblical Christianity. It is a severe overstatement to say, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. If you want to hear him speak out loud, then read the Bible out loud. Listen, certainly it is true that the Bible is the word of God. Certainly it is true that dreams, visions, promptings, etc. are a category apart and must be tested by the Bible. But certainly it is also true that God sometimes does speak to people apart from the actual pages of Holy Scripture. What verse could Ananias have consulted that would have led him to go to the street called Straight and to knock on the door of a man named Judas and to ask for a man named Saul of Tarsus? Where does one find that verse? And do we see God hamstrung by the lack of such a verse? No. We see him acting sovereignly to provide the necessary guidance to an individual for the accomplishment of his will and purpose. Let's just be careful not to be more restrictive than the Bible itself. Here we see God arranging a divine appointment and God speaking with sufficient clarity to see that appointment kept and to see a brother saved and restored. Thanks be to God. 
Pastor Paul, I know we're pretty early on in the program audio here, but I'd like to unpack that idea a little bit further if we could. You mentioned there that it's a bit of an overstatement to say, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. If you want to hear him speak audibly, then read the Bible out loud. I've heard people say that. I've heard pastors say that. So why do you think that's an overstatement? And to be clear, I agree with you. It certainly doesn't seem to fit with what we're seeing in this story. So why do people say that? And why should they maybe stop saying it? Well, first of all, I totally understand why they say it. It's an effort to push back against the excesses of some in the charismatic movement. There are some, and I want to be careful not to paint with too broad a brush, but there are some in that movement who seem more interested in their own prophetic insights than they are in the unchanging, infallible, inerrant word of God. And that's not a good thing. So I totally get why people want to push back. But let's be honest, evangelicals are famous for pushing too hard and too far back. We often drag ourselves up out of one ditch only to throw ourselves face down into the ditch on the other side of the road. Yeah, I can confirm that. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> and, and I think that's what's happening here. Yes, the Word of God is authoritative. And yes, everything needs to be tested and corrected by Scripture. But come on, how could you deny that God guides people? How can you deny that, that He leads people in terms of how they make decisions? And why would you want to deny that? Christians have believed that for thousands of years. Luther believed that. He believed that his wife, Katie, sometimes received guidance from God about his travel plans. She had a dream one time about a, a, a trip that he was going on and how he was going to be waylaid. And he listened to what she said, and it saved him from an actual ambush that had been planned. The old Baptist preacher John Bunyan believed that. Spurgeon believed that. While he was preaching, Spurgeon would sometimes get guidance from the Holy Spirit about individuals in the congregation. He would say in the middle of a sermon, there is a man here wearing a stolen pair of gloves. He needs to return them immediately. Now, come on. Did that actually happen? It did. It's actually it's in his autobiography. <laughs> wow. And interestingly, his wife did the final editing on his autobiography so we can be doubly sure that it actually happened. Okay. Well, that that's awesome. But again, you aren't saying that God is writing new books of the Bible through modern-day prophets, you are saying that the Holy Spirit can guide us in real intangible ways like he does here in this story, right? Yeah, absolutely. There was no verse telling Ananias where to find Paul. For that kind of specific guidance, he needed to hear directly from the Holy Spirit. Now, is that unusual? Yes. Is that unbiblical? Well, how in the world could you say that it is? It's happening right here in the Bible. So bottom line is that we should say no more and no less than the Bible itself. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 to 21, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. So we don't want to be too closed and we don't want to be too open. And it's real easy to get this wrong either way. But the goal, obviously, is to stick to the middle of the road. Mm, yes, amen to that. All right, let's jump back into the story now at verse 13. Ananias answered, Lord, I heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, 
The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Let's notice here that Saul has a unique mandate to take the name of Christ before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. That's probably exactly the opposite of how Peter would have described his mandate. He probably would have said that he was sent first to the children of Israel, and then in a secondary sense to kings and Gentiles. And that clues us in to the unique selection, preparation, and deployment of this particular apostle. Notice also that the gift of the Holy Spirit to Paul is tightly connected to the matter of his conversion and baptism. Those three things are all tightly clustered, though not always in exactly the same sequence over the course of the book of Acts. In the next chapter, we'll see a slight change in the sequence. We'll see people converting, receiving the Holy Spirit, and then being baptized in water. So the three are always clustered together, but not always in exactly the same order. That's just useful to notice. Verse 19. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So in an interesting twist of providence, Saul is now portrayed as doing exactly the sorts of things that Stephen had done, things that had so recently and so violently agitated Saul. He is a changed man, a radically changed man. He is risking his life to do the things that once threw him into a murderous rage. This is a total transformation. And it is from this story that we derive one of our modern idioms. We sometimes speak of a Damascus Road conversion or of someone seeing the light. But we should also remember that this particular example of conversion is is not the only one that Luke has narrated to us. It's very different, of course, from the example of the story of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, which we saw in the last chapter. In that story, the brother in question had been going to temple, reading the Bible, wrestling with the meaning of a, of a passage in Holy Scripture. Then things were explained to him. He understood and was converted. That is a far more gradual and less dramatic experience, and yet equally valid. We don't all have Damascus Road experiences. We aren't all running headlong in one direction before being struck by lightning and turned around in the other direction. Some of us were more dimmer switch than lightning bolt, right? We, it, things gradually came into focus for us. Thankfully, we have both kinds of stories in the Bible, and both are affirmed as being legitimate. Paul obviously was more lightning bolt than dimmer switch. One minute he's persecuting Christians, the next minute he's on fire preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. Let me just stop here and tell you that some people think that there is a huge amount of time 
being covered by verse 23. It does say after many days had passed. It doesn't say how many days. These sorts of vague time connectors are very characteristic of ancient literature. Some say that Paul left the city shortly after his conversion and spent three years in Petrosian Arabia on a sort of spiritual retreat and that he then returned to Damascus, resumed preaching, and then was subsequently chased out of the city. Certainly, Paul spent some time in Arabia. And certainly, he came back to Damascus. We know that from Galatians 1.17, where he says, I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. What we aren't sure about is whether this happened inside verse 23, or whether it should be thought of as happening inside verses 30 to 31. Most of the scholars I've consulted stick it inside verse 23, but obviously, I don't think we should consider this a fellowship issue. The bottom line is that Paul preached very powerfully in Damascus and eventually had to flee from the city in fear for his life. Verse 24 goes on to say, They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now again, There's a huge gap between verse 30 and the next time Paul appears in the narrative in chapter 11, verse 30. Some say that gap is the better part of 10 years. Saul spends from roughly AD 35 or AD 36 to AD 46 in the Roman province of Cilicia and much of that time living in and around his hometown of Tarsus. So when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 24, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. We should assume from that that he was preaching the gospel in the synagogues in and around Tarsus. Paul was not sitting at home waiting for his call up to the major leagues. He was doing Paul's stuff, and he was being poorly received by the Jews of his home province. For whatever reason, Luke does not narrate any of that story. In verse 31, we get a very general statement that seems to cover the better part of a decade. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And that's good. Peace is good. It may well be true that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, but it is also true that it is hard to do evangelism while you are running away from the executioners. Persecution may be good for the church in its way, but peace is good for the church in its way as well. For about a decade, the church had peace, and it grew and was built up. We assume that the next two stories are to be understood as representative samples of the sort of good stuff that was happening during all this time. Verse 32 says, Now, as Peter went here and there, among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he met a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. 
And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. In this story, Peter is portrayed as headquartered in Jerusalem and traveling about the region, offering apostolic ministry and oversight. He travels about 40 kilometers to Lydda near the coast where he performs a miracle on a man named Aeneas. The miracle looks an awful lot like the miracle performed by Jesus and narrated by Luke in Luke chapter 5. You remember the story? Some brothers brought a man on a litter of some kind. And Luke 5, 24 tells us that Jesus said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. That story sounds an awful lot like this story. And I think that's kind of the point. In verse 36, Luke says, Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Tabitha put the, or, but Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, this story also sounds a lot like a story about Jesus that Luke told us about in his gospel. In Luke 8, there's a story about a little girl who's died and everyone's weeping and crying and Jesus puts them outside and takes only Peter, James, and John inside. And Luke tells us that taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given her to eat. Now, again, that sounds a lot like this story. In fact, I, Howard Marshall says this. In Aramaic, this phrase would be, Tabitha kumi, which is only one letter different from Jesus' commanded Jairus' daughter, Talitha kumi. Talitha being Aramaic for little girl. Tabitha being the name of this woman. Are you hearing that? One letter different. Now that obviously is far more impressive when you hear it, uh, when you heard that story in Aramaic, or even when you hear it read in Greek. But even in English, it's intended to make a bit of an impression. It, th these are similar stories. What Luke is trying to show us is that the church is doing the works of Jesus, just like Jesus said. Do you remember Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. John 14, 12. I don't know if you remember that, but that's exactly what Luke intends for us to recall. That's what we're seeing in these stories, we're seeing the people of Christ doing the works of Christ through the power of the Spirit of Christ. That's the point. 
Luke is saying that the church is truly the body of Christ. The church is filled with the Spirit of Christ, and the church continues to do the work of Christ for the glory of the Lord and for the good of His people. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I want to go back to that big gap you were talking about in the timeline of Apostle Paul's life. You said that most scholars believe that he spent the better part of a decade toiling away in obscurity in Tarsus. Explain to me how that makes sense. I mean, Paul was a rock star. He was highly educated, had an incredible testimony. Why in the world would God backburner a guy like that for such a long period of time? It is totally unexpected, for sure. And it's 100% not the way that we would do it today. Hmm. If a young Muslim terrorist, for example converted to faith in Jesus Christ, we would have that guy up on the main stage of every Christian conference within three months. He'd be preaching at T4G. He'd be given the commencement address at Liberty University. (laughs) That's exactly how it would go down. Oh, yeah. I have no doubt about that at all. No, I know. And when we see a talented young person today with a compelling story, we want them to be given a platform now. I mean, if you ever even try to use the phrase Young people are the church of tomorrow. Someone will shout you down and say that young people are the church of today. (laughs) Sit down, boomer. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Give that young person a microphone. Hand them the keys to the megachurch. Give them a lucrative book deal. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Well, as we've learned over the last 20 years or so, a lot can go wrong. Turns out slow and steady really is the right way to build high caliber leaders. Paul was brilliant. He had a great story. Yep, all true, but he needed to learn to walk with a limp. And he did, literally and metaphorically. Those 10 years in Tarsus taught Paul patience, humility, and empathy. And when he finally did come back to center stage, he was a much better and wiser man. Mm. Bottom line is this. God is not in our kind of hurry, particularly when it comes to to developing leaders. Yeah, 100%. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.